You know, drill instructors or drill sergeants, for you Army types in the audience, often boast that they know more games than Milton Bradley, you know, the makers of Monopoly. And if you're a service member or a veteran in the room, you can probably think of all the games that they would kind of play. And guys, uh, civilians in the room, it's okay. Uh, These are not good games. These are games that have an intent to cause chaos and disruption, all right? Um, I remember one of the most common ones, at least for for us, uh, that would be played was when a drill instructor from a different platoon would scurry their way up to your platoon when your drill instructors weren't around. And they would come in and they would begin to offer uh, commands and... uh, and direction that were just outright in contradiction to what your drill instructor actually wanted for you. Okay, and they would try to cause chaos and havoc with the recruits. Everybody's confused. Do we listen to this guy? Do we not? Like, what do we do? And then what would happen is your real drill instructor would show up and would immediately see the chaos that was ensuing. And they would begin to provide new commands. Commands that were in direct contradiction to what the false instructor was providing. And in that moment, what happens that I like to call is competing counsel occurs. Two different counselors giving different advisement. So what will the recruits do? How will they respond? Well, almost always the recruits would hear the trusted voice of their drill instructor and cease to listen to the false instructor, wanting, desiring only to execute the commands of their actual instructor, maybe because of fear, I don't know, nonetheless. You know, much like this, I think one of the most difficult issues that we face as believers in today's day and age is this issue of competing counsel. You know, in our society today, We are under a constant barrage of information from social media to news reports to uh, friends and family and co-workers to church. It does not cease. And sometimes it may seem like everyone in your life is saying something different. Who do we listen to? Who do we trust? How will we respond? Even though sometimes it may seem like everybody's saying something different, there is this thread that we can follow that the text illuminates our eyes to that will help us to make the best decisions in life. And that's what the main thrust of the text really deals with. It deals with three key characters, two of which are protagonists, and one is a decision maker. And his name is Absalom. Now, I want to give you three numbers before we dive into the text. No, there's not going to be a quiz at the end of the service, so it's okay if you get these, you don't, you lose these numbers over time. But as I was studying the text this week, you know, one commentator noted these numbers and it really helped me to discern the point of the text. So here are the numbers for you note takers. The first number is 42, 42. The second number is 129, 129, and the third is 14. Does anyone have bingo? All right, Uh, 42, 129, 14. 42, what do these numbers mean? 42 is the number of Hebrew words 
in the plan of Ahithophel for destroying David. He uses 42 words to scheme up a plan to destroy a kingdom and a king. 129 is the number of Hebrew words in the plan of Hushai for preserving David. 129 words of a plan, of a scheme to win the day for David. And then we have 14, which is the most important number for our focus. 14 is the number of Hebrew words that serves as the content of the first half of verse 14, which we'll discuss more later in the sermon. But what these 14 words serve as is the sovereign thread that God provides for us to move our eyes away from the competing counsel, the complexities that are happening, happening in the text, and he essentially drags our eyes onto himself in these 14 words. It is the key of the text that should provoke hope as we wade through the complexities and the stories of wickedness. The Lord, in just a few words, brings more clarity than the plans and the many words and schemes of men. So today, we're going to think through the text in two ways. One, very practically, we're going to consider how to deal with competing counsel. When everyone's saying something different to us, how do we know what is right, good, true, and beautiful? And second, we're going to consider the sovereign goodness of God in the midst of confusing and competing counsel. So look with me at chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 15 and go through verse 4 of chapter 17. So as we've already stated, there are really three, three key characters in our text. Their names are Ahithophel, Hushai, and Absalom. Now, for some context, Absalom has just ripped Jerusalem from David's grasp. He's taken Jerusalem, and the, the narrator puts this pressure on the text that it, the next few decisions that he makes, Absalom makes, will be critical for the outcome of his rebellion. It all essentially hinges on how Absalom is, assesses the conflicting advice or counsel by these other two men. And from these exchanges, we can glean much for how to deal with the counsel that's often given to us. I mean, think about it. Maybe you're here today and you're consider, considering right now leaving the military. Like, What's next? What do I do? Is this the right call? You feel that pressure. Maybe you're here today and you have a defiant child. And you're trying to figure out what the best approach for discipline is with this kid you have that you loved, right? Maybe you're here today visiting and you're simply just trying to figure out what church is best for your family to be a part of. We deal with making decisions every day. And we often look to those who we trust to help us to make the best decisions. So the first step that we need to take in interpreting the counsel we receive in order to make the best decision is we need to trace the counsel. Church, we have to look critically at where the counsel's coming from. Now, the first person that Absalom 
encounters in the text is Hushai. But I want us to look first actually at the man Ahithophel. Anytime we receive counsel from someone else, there are some strategic questions that we can ask that will help us to better discern whether or not we should heed the advice provided. So for Ahithophel, we're going to ask four questions that will help us to trace the counsel that Absalom received. Here are the four questions. Number one, what is the character of the counselor? What is the character of the counselor? Two, what does the counselor desire? What does the counselor desire? Three, is the counselor rooted in God's what? Word. And four, where does the counselor want me to go? Where do they envision the destination for me to arrive at? These four strategic questions we're going to work through just with Ahithophel, but I think you'll find them helpful as you receive counsel from others in your life. So the first question we can ask anytime we receive counsel from someone is, what is the character of the counselor? Now look at chapter 16, verse 23. The text clues us in on Ahithophel's reputation. It says, Now the advice Ahithophel gave in those days was like someone asking about a word from God. Such was the regard that both David and Absalom had for Ahithophel's advice. Now, this man, he's known for his counsel, for his advisement. And on the surface, it looks like a good source, doesn't it? He had the world's respect. He had the resume to prove it. But if we look more closely at his motives, we start to see some problems. Some red flags start to shoot up. So we have to ask the next question. What does this counselor desire? Look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 17. In these verses, we get clued in on his desires. When he proposes the annihilation of David... He centers everything on who? Himself. I will. I will. I will, he says to Absalom. So what does that tell us about his desires? He desires the glory of Absalom's decision. He desires the glory of being a king maker, doesn't he? Sometimes when we get counsel from others, they counsel for the glory of self and not the glory of God. Well, what does this look like? Because it's a little more subtle. We're not making kings, right, nowadays. It's a little more subtle. Sometimes it looks like maybe it's a professional counselor and they, they say, well, good thing you heeded my counsel. And now your life has changed as a result of what I did. Can I write an article on your experience for blah, 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 for this publication? Sometimes it looks like a friend saying, yeah, you should have listened to me, and all this wouldn't have worked out the way it did. Or because you listened to me, you're welcome, right? We hear these little notes that clue us into what our counselors desire when we seek advisement from others. Then we ask the question, is the counselor rooted in God's word? This is often revealed in the counsel that we receive. 
Now, what did Ahithophel advise? What did he counsel? Well, Ahithophel suggests a radical and ruthless course of action. One that is, I would argue, utterly evil. He suggests Absalom to have relations with his father's concubines. Now, this would have been tricky for Absalom to hear. It's not with our 21st century eyes. It's not so tricky, right? Like bad call, right? Don't, don't do that. Makes sense. But in this day and age, it was common practice for a successor to a throne to take the, his predecessor's wives. Now, here's the catch. Here's why it's tricky. The world only affirmed of this practice if the predecessor was dead, not alive. Like, we're not even taking God's law, for instance, because in Leviticus 18, we learn straight up this is against God's divine law, right? Completely contradicts God's word. But just on a worldly standard, what Ahithophel advises is tricky. It's, like it, it's almost like a half-truth. Well, yeah, this is an accepted practice in the world. Why wouldn't I do that? Well, because... His dad's still alive, which makes this all the more wicked. We must trace the counsel we receive. You know, I think really what Ahithophel was, uh, was saying to his, his uh, counselee was, I want you to take your inheritance now. Make your father sick when he thinks about you. Just burn the bridge commit to the rebellion, what he encourages is in direct contradiction with God's word. Therefore, we can conclude he is not rooted in it. Amen? Clear to see. The fourth question we ask is, where does this counselor want me to go? Ahithophel does not want reconciliation for Absalom. He doesn't want what is good. He wants glory, and he wants destruction. He wants Absalom to do what would ever would make him the happiest. And what Ahithophel believes Absalom will make him Absalom the happiest is what? A dead dad and a new kingdom. You know, in today's day and age, if I was to take a pocket full of stones and start throwing them, chucking them out into our world, I promise you I would hit a counselor in our city ten times out of ten. Who would counsel you if you were having marital problems to get a divorce because it will make you the happiest. I am in this constant state of like trying to work with people, whether it's with Mighty Oaks or sometimes, sometimes in the church, of trying to unwind and unravel counsel that's centered on self. This is what the world will say to you. This is what Ahithophel's advisement to Absalom was. Do whatever will make you the happiest. Or follow your what? Heart. And the Bible very clearly says don't follow that. Follow Jesus. Be obedient. We must trace the counsel we receive. We must discern the source if we are to make the most God-glorifying decisions regardless if this is a world-respected person or not. We have to trace the counsel. 
And this is not what Absalom does. He heeds the counsel to sin on the rooftop just like his dad. But he does it in public for all to see. And as a result, there's no repentance. There's no redemption. There's no reconciliation. Only further wickedness. Friends, tracing the counsel only gets you so far. Then you have to measure it. You have to measure the counsel. In verses 5 through 14, we begin to deal directly with a different character, Hushai. Now, Hushai was David's friend. How do we know this? Well, back in 2 Samuel 15, verses 34 through 37, we learn that David actually instructed Hushai to go and try and undermine whatever Ahithophel would counsel. He was loyal. The question is, loyal to what? Or loyal to whom? You'll remember when we first meet him in chapter 16, Hushai said, long live the what? King. He said it twice. Now, the context tells us who Hushai really meant. He really meant David. He's playing a little play on words there. But the way Absalom interpreted it was that he was referring to him. He misinterpreted Hushai's profession of loyalty. So what do we learn about Hushai? This is it. And this is what's important. Hushai was loyal to the one the Lord anointed. Unlike Ahithophel, Hushai wasn't motivated by selfish desires. He was motivated by what was right. And this, I think, begs the question for all of us who advise others. And believe me, we all do. Anytime someone comes to you with a problem and then you open your mouth, you're counseling. Did you know that? You begin to counsel in that moment. Now the question for you and I is who are we loyal to? Are we loyal to selfish desires or are we loyal to the Lord? Because who you are loyal to will often determine whether or not your counsel will stand under scrutiny. You know, my grandfather used to always say, measure twice, cut once. Anyone else's granddad say that? Yeah, and dads. Who, who still says that? Everybody? Okay, good. All the men in the room said amen. Right? Measure twice, cut once. If we were to measure the counsel of Ahithophel, reading with our 21st century eyes, we're already repulsed. But there's this underlying principle that we need to consider when we receive or when we provide counsel. And that is pragmatism versus divine decree. Or another way to think about it is will you provide counsel based on wisdom from above or wisdom from below? Will you heed the counsel of others that's founded in wisdom from above or wisdom from below? Below, when we talk about providing or receiving counsel, the standard by which we measure it, we judge it, is God's word. Now, James chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, I think Pastor Stephen might have quoted it last week, but it's super helpful for us today as, as well. It says this, wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving. Gentle, compliant, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace 
by those who cultivate peace. When we measure the counsel that we receive by God's word, it will not only smell like these ingredients here on the screen, but the counselor, because of their loyalty to God, will be able to direct you to the addresses where wisdom from above is found. What do I mean by addresses? I mean like book of the Bible, chapter this, verse that. You don't have to wonder where I'm getting my material or this counsel. It's coming from God's word, which is unwavering, which is full of mercy, which is gentle. It's loving. It's peace. Here is the counsel by which or the measure that we judge all counsel by. Now, if you're giving counsel to others, man, I pray that your counsel is marked by these characteristics. And that you would hunger to give others, not some pop psychology, some new fad, some newest version of the world's wisdom, but you would hunger to give others the all-sufficient word of God. That the Apostle Peter says is sufficient for all of life. And godliness. All of it. God's word alone. Through the working of the Holy Spirit in us. Will produce righteousness in those we talk to. And will produce righteousness in us. And if we give them other things. It's like we're pushing people out to sea. With no rudder on their boat. To wander aimlessly in the ocean. But here's the good news, though. I told you in the beginning of our time, the Lord in 14 Hebrew words would capture our eyes and drag them unto himself to give us hope, to give us rest, to give us assurance, despite the complexities and the frustrations that we may encounter when trying to discern whether or not what people are telling us is good or bad, even though... We must be wise and discerning. Friends, we have a God who is very clearly in control. We can rest in the sovereignty of God. Look with me at verse 14. This is what it says. Since the Lord had decreed. Everybody say the Lord had decreed. Since the Lord had decreed that Ahithophel's good advice be undermined in order to bring about Absalom's Ruin. Both Hushai and Ahithophel schemed and plotted, argued and pleaded, but it was the Lord's decree that will bring back peace to the nation of Israel. It is the Lord's covenant that he made with David that will ensure victory. It was even the Lord's decree that would discipline David through his son's wicked actions. What do I mean? Well, it's back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11. God told David through the prophet Nathan that he was going to bring disaster on him through his own family. That he would take his wives and give them to another before his very eyes. And that that man would sleep with them in broad daylight, like on a rooftop. Where David's sin was done in private, his son's sin would be done in public. God's decrees always come to pass. Whereas my sweet six-year-old daughter always says, God always keeps his promises. Amen, amen. 
God himself undermines the destruction of David. God sends Hushai to undermine Ahithophel's counsel. And when Ahithophel proposes the complete annihilation of David that very night, God decrees it would not be so, and it was not so. What the narrator tells us in verse 14 is that the plans of men cannot thwart God's will. Despite all of the human rhetoric, deception, sinfulness, and evil, everything in this text has been divinely shaped. One commentator calls this verse the divine fulcrum of the chapter. That all of these complex things that are happening and swirling around it are based off of this fulcrum, this truth of God's sovereignty. And as true as it was back in this historical record, friends, this, this is still true today. The Bible from front to back draws our attention to the reality of God's sovereignty. Consider just a few texts. In Genesis 50, verse 20, this is the culminating moment in the story of Joseph. Joseph was a young boy with brothers who were jealous of him, who would sell him into slavery when their plan to murder him didn't seem like the best course of action. Joseph would be... Uh, bought by a man, a rich man, whose wife would try to um, sleep with him, who would falsely then accuse him of rape. Joseph would end up in prison where he would be forgotten. But the Lord was with him. And the Lord brought him out of prison. And the Lord gave him an opportunity to interpret King Pharaoh of Egypt's dreams. And he would rise to the right hand of Pharaoh with more power than he could have ever imagined. From slavery to the top for a purpose. To prepare for a severe famine so that people would not die. And that included his very family that sold him into slavery. And when his brothers arrived into Egypt... This is what Joseph said. You planned evil against me. God planned it. What? What is it? The evil that they planned. God planned it for good. To bring about the present result, the survival of many people. What are you saying? Are you saying that God plans even the evil plans of others somehow for good? Yes, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. The evil that we've all experienced is not without purpose at some point. Now, that's hard to reckon. Amen? Cannot wrap our heads around how that works out. It is a mystery. But because God decrees, it is so. In Proverbs 21.1, it says a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand, and he directs it wherever he chooses. This is certainly true of Absalom. The Lord moves his heart after he had already wanted to do 
or to execute Ahithophel's counsel, he moves his heart to change his mind to go with Hushai. Why? Because it would preserve. Why? Because the Lord decreed. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have also received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his own will. Our lives have a purpose. Our lives are in accordance with the plan of God. What should that do in us? Everybody take a deep breath and let it out. You're not in control. God is. What rest that can wash over us. Man, when we're in this moment of making a difficult decision, it can be like, oh my gosh, if we don't make the right one, then everything's going to, there's going to be a nuclear disaster on our hands, right? Like Hiroshima 3.0 right now in my life. What do I do? Pause. The Lord is sovereign. He is in control. What he decrees will come to pass. Meditate on that. Ask the question, is this decision the most faithful one? Am I compromising my faith at any venture? Or am I striving to bring glory to God? If those foundational things are true, and the Lord will establish your steps. And if you're going the wrong road, guess what he'll do too? Move your heart to the right direction. He has that power. We can rest knowing that nothing someone says or the evil that people do to us can thwart the decree of God. And despite David's many sins that we have been talking about every week, the Lord is still working to advance his cause and to thwart Absalom's rebellion. The rest of this section of scriptures only furthers the beauty of this truth. From spies narrowly escaping captivity to Ahithophel's suicidal end. What we learn about our God is that he reigns securely, that he brings justice, and that his word is unchanging. And all this matters for us today because it informs us that we should care deeply about, about the counsel that we receive and the counsel that we provide. That that counsel should be in step with the will and the word of God. But far greater... It matters for us today because the Lord decreed all those years ago to undermine Absalom. And today, friends, we have a Savior in Jesus Christ from the line of David, the greater king who never sinned, who reigns today, who has said he is coming back to make all things new. Why? Because the Lord has decreed. Amen. Let's stand and pray.